I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't uncommon for our phone to ring in the middle of the night. Or for my family to live under police protection. Or for the bomb dogs to come at dawn and sniff underneath my father's car. I was assigned to hold Happy, our family terrier, so he didn't attack the police dogs while they did their job. My father was a civil rights attorney, one of the few in St. Louis, in all of Missouri, actually. In the 1960s and 70s, civil rights attorneys didn't get a lot of respect in the Midwest. They were considered troublemakers. It was a job for someone who was kind of a terrier himself, angry and unrelenting. That was my dad. He was very good at what he did. He had a lot of clients. So when our phone rang on the night of May 4th, 1970, I woke up, but I wasn't surprised. His clients called at all hours of the day and night with all kinds of emergencies. I was 12 years old at the time, and I was used to it. We lived in a big house right near Washington University. There was an eight-foot fence around the garage in our backyard. And that night... I heard my father open it, back the car out, then close the fence and drive away down Maryland Avenue. I went back to sleep. It was so normal for us that I didn't even mention it the next day. Years later, though, I'd go back and begin to pull at the threads of that night, May 4th, 1970. Thousands of students rioted on the campus of WashU. They burned a federal building to the ground. Some of them were arrested, and one of them became my father's client. Howard Mechanic. He was a 22-year-old senior at the time, a long-haired campus activist with plans to go to law school. Instead, he was sentenced to five years in federal prison. Five years for protesting. But Howard didn't go to prison. He went on the run, and he stayed on the run for nearly 30 years. My father represented hundreds, maybe thousands of clients over the course of his career from traffic court to the U.S. Supreme Court. But Howard Mechanic's disappearance haunted him for the rest of his life. For years, he'd ask, sometimes out of the blue, where did Howard go? Whatever became of him? Finally, I decided to find out. Of us three children, I was the one who inherited my father's preoccupation with Howard. I didn't become a lawyer, although I did think about it. Instead, I became a historian and a documentary filmmaker. My search for Howard Mechanic led me to places I never could have imagined. A Cold War spy ring, a conspiracy to murder a civil rights leader, and the U.S. government's attempts to cover it all up. I know, it sounds like the stuff of crazy tin hat conspiracy theories. Except it's not. I spent almost a decade fighting for the documents to prove it. I'm Nina Gildan-Seavey, and this is My Fugitive. Before we get to the riots at Washington University on May 4th, 1970, 
I want to go back in time and talk about a string of events that lead up to that night. The first is a speech made three years earlier in the summer of 1967. So I'm going to say it very loudly and say it very explicitly what I mean by a revolution. What I mean by a revolution is overthrowing the American government. That's Devereaux Kennedy. Everybody calls him Dev. He ran in the same circles as Howard Mechanic, and he was the student body president at Washington University. His speech was delivered at a gathering in Santa Barbara, California, billed as the first ever meeting of student leaders opposed to the war. It's going to come about by black rebellions in our cities, joined by some white people. The people in universities can do a number of things to help. They have access to some money, and they can give these people guns, which I think they should do. They can engage in acts of terrorism and sabotage outside the ghetto. White activists can go outside there and they can blow things up, and I think they should. The major thing they can do is, while all this is going on, completely demoralizing America and castrating America, they can show people what America is capable of if it ends imperialism and if it installs a different kind of system. Deb's speech was covered in the local and even in the national press. Years later, Dev told me he had no idea this speech would get that kind of reaction. I remember there was a lot of loose talk about uh, revolution this and revolution that. And I said, well, to me, revolution means overthrow of the government. But understand, I had no idea of how controversial that would be at the time. Because I wasn't looking up to see all the people who were over above recording this and listening to it, the newspaper people. Shortly after that speech some strange things started to happen in Dev's life. I was uh, dating and, in fact, living with a girl whose name I won't mention. So a letter was sent to her parents saying, do you know your daughter is uh, living with and sleeping with this uh, guy who's this radical? It was anonymous. We always wonder who wrote the letter. And I'm absolutely convinced it was the FBI. Dev might well have been right about that. Within weeks of that speech, the FBI opened what's known as a main file on Dev. And by February of 1968, the St. Louis Bureau was sending memos about Dev straight to J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. Almost 30 years later, one of Hoover's trusted lieutenants wrote a book about his time at the Bureau. And in it, he quoted Dev's speech in Santa Barbara verbatim. Dev was definitely on the FBI's radar, but he wasn't alone. Deb's friends back at WashU, they were of interest to the feds now, too. The next event I want to tell you about takes place on WashU's campus a little more than a year after Dev Kennedy's speech. Again, this doesn't involve Howard Mechanic directly, but this one puts him squarely in the sights of the FBI. It's late in the fall of 1968, and the last nine months had been a volatile time in America. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Bobby Kennedy was killed two months later. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? In August, student protesters were beaten and gassed outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. campus protests became angrier and more radicalized, and the target was often the campus ROTC program, the Reserve Officer Training Corps. Sometimes it was called ROTC. There were two ROTC buildings on the WashU campus, one for the Air Force and one for the Army. 
On December 3, 1968, at 4 o'clock in the morning, a security guard on campus spotted two people near the Army ROTC building. They were in the process of placing homemade bombs on a windowsill when the guard saw them. One of them took off, but the security guard caught the other, a 21-year-old senior named Michael Siskind. Siskind was arrested and charged, but not with attempted arson, with sabotage, a federal crime. The charge was so unusual that it attracted national media attention. In St. Louis, an anti-war protest has resulted in what the Justice Department calls the first conviction under the World War II Sabotage Act. A 21-year-old Washington University senior, Michael Siskind, today pleaded guilty of attempting to destroy an ROTC building with a firebomb. No one was hurt. No device even went off. But Siskind was sentenced to five years in federal penitentiary. The conviction for sabotage and the long sentence, those were signals. St. Louis was a place where protesters were going to be punished. J. Edgar Hoover congratulated his agents in St. Louis on the Siskin conviction. But whoever was with Michael Siskin that night was still out there, and Hoover wanted him caught. That never happened. The FBI never charged anyone else with that crime, but they had their suspicions. I have a memo from the special agent in charge of the St. Louis office of the FBI to J. Edgar Hoover. It has one name on it, a possible accomplice to Michael Siskind, my father's future client, Howard Mechanic. More after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The Draft Lottery, a live report on tonight's picking of the birth dates for the draft. On December 1st, 1969, the Draft Lottery was broadcast on national television. Here's how it worked. 366 little capsules, one for every day of the year, plus the leap day, were put into a bin, then drawn out one date at a time. A random selection a sequence for induction... For 1970. 
September 14, zero, zero, September 14th, all men born that day between the ages of 18 and 26 were Uncle Sam's number one pick. There are 366 numbers to select, one for each birthday in the year. It went on for hours until every date was chosen. If you got a low number, you were probably going to Vietnam. High number, you were safe. In the middle, you crossed your fingers and hoped they didn't need you. The lottery changed everything. All men had to register for the draft when they turned 18. But before the lottery, you could avoid the draft if you were in school, or had the right sort of job, or even if you were married with children. No more. Now, the random selection process meant that a lot of privileged white kids could no longer be protected. They were at risk of going to war. At WashU and on campuses all over America, the protest grew even more urgent and intense. And one of the things that happened on campus was that there were demonstrations, but at night there would be kind of guerrilla activity of people out with whammo slingshots. And if you put a ball bearing in it, you, you can do serious damage. That's a former member of the Students for a Democratic Society at WashU, the local chapter of the National Anti-War Group, SDS. All these years later, he's still anxious about us using his name in conjunction with the event he's about to describe. On February 23, 1970, he and some friends were sitting around an off-campus apartment. There were about a dozen or 15 of us talking about what we should do. And among other things, I said we should do something dramatic. And in the course of an hour or so, we developed a plan. A plan to burn down a building. I mean, all of us had some concept of how you commit arson. And none of us were at all stupid. A number of things were thought about. One of the most important was, is there anybody in the building? We want to make sure there's nobody in the building. And the second thing is that we should get away with it. <laughs> they siphoned gas from a car into some empty bottles, grabbed some rags, and headed to campus around 11 p.m. Certain people went to the dormitory areas to set off fire alarms to distract things. They split up. One group took the Army ROTC building and the other, the Air Force. We literally were there for less than 10 minutes. Broke windows and threw in Molotov cocktails and got out of there. We didn't wait around to see if we were doing this well or not. The Air Force building didn't burn, but a photo of the gutted Army ROTC building dominated the front page of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch the next day. The U.S. attorney convened two federal grand juries that spring to try to identify who was involved. My father represented the students who'd been subpoenaed. He told them all to take the fifth. Don't say a word. And they didn't. The code of silence amongst the arsonists stuck. No one named names, which angered local law enforcement and the FBI. They'd failed to catch Michael Siskin's accomplice when they arrested him back in December of 68. And now, the building that had been his target was burned to the ground. And no one knew who did it. In fact, when the man you just heard told me this story, it was the first time anyone had ever admitted to the crime. But once again the FBI had its suspicions. A memo from the St. Louis special agent in charge to J. Edgar Hoover names one man as the chief suspect in the burning of the Army ROTC building. Again, 
Howard Mechanic. Another document describes a conversation between Howard and a confidential informant to the FBI. The informant tells Howard he's done a good job on the ROTC building. Howard doesn't respond. He doesn't admit to anything. But the informant reports that Mechanic grinned when she suggested that he was involved. ROTC buildings were targets on plenty of campuses across the country. But Washu was different because St. Louis was different. Unlike any other city in America, St. Louis was built on the foundations of war. And that fact mattered in ways the students protesting on Washu's campus couldn't possibly have understood. I guess that's an aspect of the history of the city that has been hidden behind the frontier mythology of the Gateway Arch. Walter Johnson is a native Missourian. He teaches history at Harvard, and he wrote a book about St. Louis called The Broken Heart of America. The Gateway Arch is the most famous symbol of the city. It's a huge skyscraper-high structure right by the Mississippi River. And the banks of that river are full of ore, full of lead. The military history of St. Louis is literally in the soil of the place. Military industry follows lead. And so St. Louis became very early in the 19th century a center of lead smelting. Because of that, the military of the young United States had its Western headquarters in St. Louis. So what that meant is that most of the Indian wars that were fought on the plains before the Civil War were either staged out of or supported from St. Louis. So St. Louis was the nerve center of the wars on the plains. A century later, St. Louis was still a center of America's military-industrial complex. By the Vietnam War, local industries had moved from lead smelting into something much more sophisticated. Monsanto, based in the suburb of Creve Coeur, was making the defoliant Agent Orange. Olin Industries in Clayton was making M1 rifles. McDonnell Douglas was making fighter jets. Mallinckrodt Chemical was making napalm. And each of those corporations had seats on the board of trustees at Washington University. It's as if those protests were in the middle of a military base. And they thought of those protests as being in the middle of their campus where they went to school. And instead, from the standpoint of the FBI or the, even the administration of WashU, it looks as if they're, they're right in the middle of some sort of strategically essential asset. So the university's leadership was not going to look past the burning of an ROTC building. They wanted the protest to stop and they went after the student leaders. They got an injunction barring a handful of them from protesting on campus, including the man named in the FBI reports, Howard Mechanic. This brings us to late April 1970 and the next event leading up to the May 4th riots. Richard Nixon is scheduled to address the nation about America's involvement in Vietnam. For a brief moment, there's hope that he'll declare an end to the fighting, or at least a winding down. Instead, he announces an escalation. They were already doing it in secret, but now the U.S. will officially expand the war beyond the boundaries of Vietnam and start bombing Cambodia. We take this action not for the purpose of expanding the war into Cambodia, but for the purpose of ending the war in Vietnam and winning the just peace we all desire. 
Protests erupted on campuses all across America. At Kent State University outside of Akron, Ohio, Governor James Rhodes called in the Ohio National Guard. They occupied the campus and clashed with students, firing round after round of tear gas. Rhodes gave a press conference saying they would no longer tolerate the uprising. You can literally hear him banging on the desk in his speech. They only have one thing in mind, that is to destroy higher education in Ohio. And when they start taking over communities, this is when we're going to use every part of the law enforcement agency of Ohio to drive them out of Kent. When the clashes continued on May 4th, the National Guard didn't just fire tear gas. National Guardsmen opened fire with semi-automatic weapons. In just 13 seconds, they shot over 60 rounds into the crowd. Four students were killed. Two young men, William Schroeder of Lorraine, Ohio, and Jeffrey Miller of Plainview, New York, and two young women, Sandy Lee Scheuer of Youngstown, Ohio, and Alice... Nine more were wounded. One was paralyzed. There's a famous photograph from that day of a long-haired girl kneeling and screaming over the bleeding body of a young man lying face down on the pavement. After the shooting, one young man dipped a black flag of revolution in the blood and waved it about as a symbol of the student's anger and frustration. The news spread quickly to campuses across the country. At least 114 colleges reported student strikes, some conducted with the sanction of the college administrations. But there were pockets of violence and destruction. At the University of California at Berkeley, students tried to burn the Navy ROTC building. Around 10.30 that night, students began gathering at Washington University. There were thousands of people there from everywhere. We had never had a crowd anything close to that. And I did speak, but they didn't want to hear anything. That's Dev Kennedy, who'd given that fateful speech at Santa Barbara three years earlier. They didn't want to hear speeches at all, that crowd. They wanted to go straight to the ROTC building and burn it down, which they did. Outside the Air Force building, the crowd began chanting and throwing rocks. One person later reported that he heard a little bang mixed in with the chants and the cheers. And then some of the protesters broke down the building's doors and smashed the windows. That's when I was frightened for other people. I thought, oh boy. You cannot burn down this building. And when the fire trucks came, which they did, and throw rocks at the fire trucks, I said, this is going to be, for people who are doing it, it's going to be serious trouble. At 1245, the police issued a Code 1000, the riot call. As the building went up in flames, Dev Kennedy worried that he'd be held responsible. And then he spotted something odd, a man in a tuxedo lingering at the edge of the demonstration. He was there looking at all this, and I thought, there's a very good place for you to be tonight, Dev. Go right in front of him and be right with him. So if there's any question about where you were when this happened, nobody can say anything. Because who's doing this is certainly going to be caught for it. Around 1 a.m., the firefighters had the fire under control. The crowd broke up and backed away from the smoking building. All that was left standing was an empty shell. The phone in my home rang a few hours later. My father got up, got dressed, and drove off down Maryland Avenue. The next day, Howard Mechanic became his client. My father fought Howard's case, and they lost. Howard got five years in federal prison, an extraordinary, inexplicable sentence. 
There was almost no evidence that he had done anything except attend a protest on the night that the Kent State students were murdered. So Howard Mechanic disappeared. And my dad spent the rest of his life haunted by him. In 1993, more than 20 years after Howard fled, a reporter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch interviewed my dad. At some point in the interview, my father said to him, if I wrote a book, it would be called Howard Mechanic. By the end of his career, my father was one of the most respected civil rights attorneys in the country. He kept conscientious objectors out of jail. He fought redlining laws in St. Louis. He argued before the U.S. Supreme Court And the book about his life would be called Howard Mechanic? I recently found a tape of a speech my father had given in 1987. He was accepting an award from the National Lawyers Guild for his civil rights work. And he talked for a while about the two things that shaped his professional life. The first was his choice to represent black defendants at a time when almost all of white St. Louis opposed the civil rights movement. And the second... The second thing was, I think, the student movement, which I became involved in the ROTC burnings and at Wash University and throwing a cherry bomb. By the way, is, is Howard Mechanic in the ROTC? <laughs> 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 I mean, hasn't been heard. <laughs> he was sentenced to five years in the penitentiary, and I haven't seen him. <laughs> in the middle of accepting an award for his life's work, There was Howard, my father's strange, constant companion. When my dad was dying of cancer, he and I talked about Howard a lot. In fact, the last real conversation we ever had was about Howard. We sat on the porch of his house in South St. Louis, where he'd lived since he and my mother had divorced. It was almost winter, but the late afternoon sun was warm. And my father seemed to want to talk while he still had the energy. He endured decades of harassment from the government after Howard went on the run. The FBI believed he was somehow complicit in Howard's flight. And he was angry that Howard had fled and left him holding the bag. But there was something else, too. Something about the whole thing just didn't add up. He had the feeling that something had happened that Howard and he couldn't explain. Later, I would discover just how right he was. I spent nearly a decade trying to answer the question of whatever became of Howard Mechanic, and every door I opened revealed more doors and more rooms. This show is about that journey, from one room to the next, and the ghosts that occupied all of them. It's a story fueled by paranoia, about communists in our midst, and about anti-war activists trying to bring down the United States, and about the threat of black power. All of it forged in the peculiar crucible of my hometown, St. Louis. After a couple of hours talking that day on my father's front porch, the sun went down. He was chilly and worn out, and I realized at some point in our conversation I did something that was unusual for us. I put my arm around him, and we walked inside that way, holding on to one another. We never spoke about Howard again, In the last weeks of his life, my father's incredibly sharp mind began to fail. He never did learn what happened to Howard Mechanic, or why. But I did. Next time, 
on My Fugitive. We have information King has been shot at Lorraine. I could hear people say, get down, get down. I remember seeing him fall in a way that he wasn't just getting down. I could see the blood was coming from his right side. It took a good number of weeks before the FBI finally figured out that it was James Earl Ray. There were always offers being made on what might be a bounty to collect if somebody was able to kill King. My Fugitive is an original production of Pineapple Street Studios, an odyssey. You can binge all episodes from this series exclusively on the new Odyssey app. Odyssey has all the podcasts you crave, plus the music, news, and sports that matter to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. Download it for free today from the App Store or Google Play. This show is hosted by me, Nina Gildensevi. Our producers are Kat Aaron, Agarenish Ashagre, Justine Daum, Janelle Anderson, and Maria Robbins-Somerville, with additional production support from Zandra Ellen. The show is edited by Joel Lovell, with support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Research and fact-checking by Charles Richter and Ben Phelan. Our engineers are Noriko Okabe, Hannes Brown, and Will Bigwood. This episode features original composition by Hannes Brown and music from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our executive producers, Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. And thank you to each of our guests for joining us to help tell this story. To see photos, FBI documents, and more, follow us on Instagram at MyFugitivePodcast and visit our website at MyFugitivePodcast.com.